creatives struggle with self-worth and they feel so deeply connected to their self-worth and their work almost more than any other industry. And so we burn ourselves out. And I, I think that we're in an epidemic, I really do. And I'm really here now in my career to empower other people. This is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis. We're talking fashion, business, and what's next. Let's go. Madison Utendahl is a multi-hyphenate. She is the founder of Utendahl Creative, a writer, public speaker, Forbes 30 Under 30, Adweek Creative 100 recipient, and a two-time Webby Award winner. Prior to founding Utendahl Creative, Madison was on the founding teams of Cultural Phenomenons, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Refinery 29's 29 Rooms, and Museum of Ice Cream. The experience of being behind these massive cultural successes led to her expertise at her agency, but it also led to Madison's firsthand experience with burnout. Since then, she's not only discovered the power of authenticity and self-worth within the workplace on an individual level, but is fundamentally changing the way creatives work via leadership and policy at her agency. Madison has been invited to speak at Inbound, VidCon, Yelp's Women in Business Summit, and many more. She is also the on-camera video host and creator of The Elephant, and her name is. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Madison Utendahl to What's Next Podcast with you, Mindy Francis. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, reading a, hearing a bio out loud, I feel like everyone should just hear it. Hear it about themselves every now and then, right? You're like, I'm like, I did all those things? Wow, okay. 100% <laughs> of the time when we read the bio of our guests, they sort of cringe. Yeah, it's so <laughs> cringeworthy. But it's not It's not at all. You're accomplished. Yeah. And, and that's why we're sitting here talking to you Fair. to hear more about you, garner insights about how... You got here, your mm-hmm. journey, which has been um, so inspiring to our listeners based upon the feedback we get after this show. So yeah. it's really great. And I'm really thrilled to have this conversation with you. So let's jump in. Yeah, I really do appreciate you having me. Yeah. I love, I mean, being on podcasts like this is, you know, it's a dream. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Excited. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, obviously, as I said. Take us to the beginning. When did you decide on this career path? So I am very honest about, I did not, I couldn't have imagined I ended up here. I knew that I would pursue being a creative, but it's taken so many different forms throughout my career. I started in film and TV, went to Brown, got a film degree, thought I was going to be, you know, a film executive, a director. And a couple years into working in television, I was like, I don't know if I want to have my life be based around a 12 hour day and, you know, living on set and sleeping in the office sometimes, even if it was for my craft. Right. And then I ended up pivoting to being a video producer at Refinery29 and still felt it, it felt right. I felt like I was moving in the right direction, but it didn't quite hit it. Right. Pivoted again to social media, found a lot of success in that. But as a creative and social, I hated it. I was like, this is my art is being given a stage for such a fleeting amount of time. Mm -hmm. Am I really making an impact? Right. And have found that what I'm doing now, which is an intersection of video, being a video producer again, but more and then also having a design studio. This feels right for right now. Right. But I'm also honest that like your career should evolve as you evolve. Right. right? I completely agree. 
you know, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm 32 years old. I live in New York City. I'm getting married next year. I don't know. My life might, thank you. My life is going to shift as it has shifted every couple of years as it does for all of us. And I'm just excited and curious as, you know, as to what my career will continue to evolve to be. I love that so much. I'm a big advocate for allowing life's opportunities to um, meet you and, and venturing on those different paths. It's definitely the way to go. So what was it like being the recipient of Forbes 30 Under 30 yeah. and Adweek's Creative 100? You know, I'm very honest about this because <laughs> I get messages every year when those applications open and people say, oh, gosh, Madison, like my whole life stream is to be on 30 Under 30. Will you write me a recommendation? How did it feel? And I meet a lot of women who put so much of their worth into winning these awards. Right. And I, I'm honest and I'm like, it's a beautiful accomplishment. You feel great, but it doesn't come with $5 million. Right. Your life really doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And to put all of your worth into one thing that has politics and There's so much human essence involved and even just filling out an application. Are you tired? What day is it? Like, did you have someone? I mean, there's all these things that go into submitting for an award like this. Right. That the honest answer is it's a beautiful accomplishment. I'm super grateful. It has not changed my life. It does not change the world. And I did not put my self-worth attached to this award. And I don't encourage other people to do that either. Right. It doesn't define you. Doesn't define me. But we love to see it because it's aspirational and it does inspire others to dream and achieve. And what category were you in for Forbes? I was in marketing. Nice. The biggest, and this really goes out, especially to like other Black women, the biggest value I get from 30 under 30 is giving other black women the opportunity to see themselves on these lists. Right. Right. And if that's why you're applying to be like, I want other black women or other POC women to see themselves on this list, then apply. Right. And fight for it. Right. But if you think you're going to get it and all of a sudden your business financials are going to change or people are going to stop you on the street, like don't do it for those reasons. Right. Don't do it for your daddy saying great job. Don't do it for any of that. You have to do it for you. But more importantly, you have to do it for other people. Right. And you have to do it for other people to see themselves. And right. if that's your reasoning, then go for it and email me and I'll write you a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. So you're also, so we're talking about awards, but I think that, um, you know, it it speaks to, a, you know, a body of work. And mm-hmm. you're a two-time Webby Award recipient. What for? Tell yeah. us what for. And what was special about receiving those recognitions? So I won the two Webbies for uh, being, I was actually, the honest answer is I was the only person on the social team at Museum of Ice Cream. So I was the head of social or like chief social officer, but there was no one below me. Right, right. <laughs> So, yeah, I won it for a museum of ice cream. Um, and it, which I've been to many times yeah. and had a blast. Yeah, I first went in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> that was like that. That was the one I was the most proud of, to be honest. It was, it went from, that was really when we established to the world that like we were a real business. And right. We were young. We we're 26 years old. So to have that validity and people see like, oh no, wow, they took out a bank in San Francisco and converted into a museum. Like these aren't just a bunch of kids doing some bullshit, right? right. They've established something. Um, but what did the Webby Awards feel? Uh, I would say more than anything, it's definitely out of the other awards that I've won, it's been um, probably what I'm most proud of in the awards category of my life because of who also was received awards 
alongside you. Alongside me. And I was a kid. I was 26, 27 years old. And I've been working 16 hour days, seven days a week for years. And we'll get into that later because I don't do that. We're going to do that. (laughs) But I had worked so hard and had felt very much not received by that world of marketing and advertising as a young woman, as a black person, I felt on the outside. Mm -hmm. And that was a public acknowledgement that like, I belong there. Right. All the things everyone was saying, I was too young, too black, too pretty, too, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Was bullshit. That's the only word that was coming to my mind. (laughs) And so getting on that stage was like, it was kind of a fuck you to everybody. Yeah. And also like, yes to black people. Yeah. Yes to women, you know, being like, we can do this. Right. So it was a really beautiful moment in my career. It was so awesome because I went, it was like a Marie Claire power trip. Yeah, yeah. And I had been there with like a hundred or 200 C-suite yeah. women executives. And we just played through the whole. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was so much fun. So you were on the founding teams for some pretty major experiential moments, including mm-hmm. Refinery 29, 29 Rooms. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. What did you like about working on those projects? I loved working at Refinery29. It was the era where Refinery was, it was the era of media, right? So BuzzFeed, Vice, Huffington Post, yeah. like when these businesses were just at their best thriving. And I had gone from working in predominantly male heavy environments. And here I was working in this all female, you know, heavily queer environment as well mm-hmm. and just felt a sense of physical freedom in my body and just not caring what I wore to work and being able to just show up and be myself. Your and full self. My full right. self and not have to worry about that. I mean, this is pre-me too, right? So right. film, media was different. It was different. You, As a woman, I thought about what I wore to work. I was right. that conscious about the environment was conducive to not feeling safe. Right. And so to go to a refinery and work in that type of environment, I think allowed for the best of the creative brilliance of everyone who was a part of that. To shine. Yeah. And so the first couple of years of 29 Rooms was really, uh, I think, a product, an exemplary of a group of people who were able to show up as themselves at work. Right. And it's been the greatest inspiration for starting my own business of just like, what does it mean to actually create a safe environment where people can just like, have an idea and not worry if it's the best idea right. just to express that they have one. Right. So 29 Rooms is like, is an exemplary, is is, is an example of that, right. you know? And I, I loved it. Loved so, it. So um, winning all these accolades um, in marketing and as a creative and so forth, pretty much rings a bell that you might know a thing or two about strategy yeah. and marketing and so forth. Are there any gems that you've, that you've come across that speaks to your current business and t- tell us about your current business. Yeah. Well, in terms of gems, like what I think was marketing and advertising and design, which is predominantly what I'm in now is the design world. So is, necessary. <laughs> yeah. Is two things. One, I say this all the time, but if you want to make the wrong decisions, wrong creative decisions, ask everyone. Okay. If you want to make the right creative decision, like ask yourself. And I think that's one of the most important things about succeeding in this industry is that you have to really know how to listen to your gut and your creative instincts. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a genius when it comes to brand building, right? Like (laughs) you have to, you can take stock of what other people think and hear them out. I think it is beautiful to be able to ask other people their opinion and receive it. Yeah. 
But you then have to go home and close your eyes and actually go within and be like, well, what do I really think? Right. What do I think is best for the brand? Am I going to trust my instincts here and feel confident that maybe I also might not be right? Right. I might put forth an idea that like might not be the right idea, Mm -hmm. but I'll only know that if I try. Right. And so I think what my career and these awards and all these things have just like taught me like that instinct, that gut feeling is an important one to pay attention to and not lose sight of. Right. Um, And it was the catalyst for starting my business, which is we're an all female identifying uh, design firm. Half, half, I should say half strategy, marketing, half design. Okay. And we're built off of using qualitative and quantitative data as the means of outside opinion, but also going within and really trusting our own instincts as a group of women and saying, what do we feel? What do we think? And not have to be concerned about being in a pressurized environment or in in a space that doesn't feel safe to us. That that sounds like a winning formula. Yeah, it works. Instincts, I mean, that's what makes you a creative. <laughs> yeah. And many people that aren't creative, you know, and they're happy to admit that, don't understand how instinctual it is. And it's a gift. Yeah. But I love that you also mix the qualitative data because you do have to communicate that to clients and others. <laughs> hundred people, 100%. And like the other reality. Like, you know what you know, yes. but like here's the data supporting 100%. it. 100%. In order to, you know, have the buy-in uh, to move forward with whatever you're doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I like will geek out on color theory any day. But like <laughs> the reality is, is that, you know, there's so much out there that you can learn from. And rather than I think a lot of creatives are like, I don't deal with data numbers. That's like, I'm like, well, it's not a, if you can shift your mindset about that and look at it as a lens. Right. It's just one of the elements of building a brand mm-hmm. and also recognize that there are other experts out there who can give you great insight to inform your creative ideas. Why is that a bad thing? Right. Well, I think any marketer, anyone in the creative space, and if you're a creative and, you know, marketing is so broad these days, you you have to be data fluent, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're not, get on board mm-hmm. because that's where everything is and that's what's happening at the top and where the decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. So it's an important mix. That intrigued me. I had to ask you. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> So, you know, you've been transparent about experiencing burnout yeah, very in the workplace, so. and that has led to your advocacy of others experiencing this. Take us back to that moment and walk us through what you were feeling. I was so excited to just mm-hmm. embark upon this piece of the yeah. conversation with you. Yeah. Um, you know, burnout is so real, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this is going to resonate with a lot of folks, but so intrigued about your perspective on this. Yeah. I did not know I was burnt out for so long. And I always say that I think, especially in American society, we like gas. It's like you're, everyone's being gaslit about their burnout, mm-hmm. right? Oh, pull yourself by the bootstraps. Like that's this American way, the American dream, working hard. Millennials don't want to work. Gen Z don't want to work. And so all of a sudden, these r- very real feelings that so many people feel and experience, they're like, well, I get, is this, am I, is this okay for me to feel this way? Am I just young? Am I just a millennial? Am I just spoiled? Whatever else the construct tells us about work. And so I spent many years of my career putting in crazy hours, you know, working 70 hour weeks, sleeping with my phone next to my pillow, you know, that kind of energy, no meditation, sacrificing workouts. And I ended up developing pancreatitis, which my doctor was like, you're either a closeted alcoholic or you're 90 years old. They're like, could not figure out right. why at that time I was 26, 27. Why Goodness. was I having all these 
health issues. I did endoscopies. I mean, I was traveling around the country trying to figure out like what was wrong with me. And eventually one doctor was like, I think you need to take a look at like how you live hmm. and your environment and what kind of stress you're under. And he's like, I, I hate to sound like I'm giving up on your health, but like, there's just nothing actually wrong with you. And I was so mad. Right. I was like the American medical system. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously, especially as a black person, like, of course, that's a natural, like, they're not taking my pain into consideration. They're not doing the tests they're supposed to do. And I fought against what he was saying. And he was a black man. Like he was a black, he was a right. man. He was, he, I that you felt that was a safe space. <laughs> yes. And so, but even then, the last thing that came to my mind was, is this my job causing this? This is my work causing this. And I realized it was. I started to read about burnout and understanding how much it's psychological, it's physiological, it's emotional symptoms that people don't even realize are a product of burnout. Paranoia. Hmm. Start thinking everyone was trying to get me to quit my job. Things that like is a symptom of this disorder. It's a syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. it, it actually was classified as a syndrome in 1970. It is considered one. Right. But we gaslight people into thinking it's not. But right. It is, actually is, in any sort of, you know, psychiatry handbook. And I finally quit my job because I reached a place where I didn't align with how the founders of the business were running the running, business. Operating I, the business. I got to a place where I was like, you know what, like, why are we getting to work at eight o'clock in the morning? This is not an investment bank. And so I used these other excuses to leave. But really, deep down, I was burnt out. Right. And it sent me on a quest of understanding burnout understanding why we don't really recover from burnout, why black women are the most susceptible to burnout, what are all the systemic reasons that black people find themselves burnt out more than anyone else in this country? What are the jobs that people burn out more, especially, you know, you have healthcare and teachers. And we saw this over the pandemic. We finally saw people recognizing how hard a teacher works, how right. burnt out they are, how much weight someone in healthcare works. Mm -hmm. But creatives also burn themselves out. Creatives struggle with self-worth and they feel so deeply connected to their self-worth and their work almost more than any other industry. My dad's in finance. He's not like thinks about him as a person connected to his day job. Right. In the same way that a creative puts out work and if it's not received, am I good? Right. He doesn't go through that. Neither does my brother who's not a creative either. The creatives go through that. And so we burn ourselves out. And I I think that we're in an epidemic. I really do. And I'm really here now in my career to empower other people. This is impacting everyone. And I do believe the first step is we have to stop trivializing this. Right. And recognize like it can lead to suicide for some people. Right. You know, it's a very real thing. Right. And it's time to stop making it seem like it's not. I've definitely seen it through the years. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a trauma response yeah. for so many people, so many. a fear of the ground being pulled from yes. them. You know, being in the office, I, I don't want to say unnecessarily because mm -hmm. sometimes it requires sure. it, working around the clock, going to brunch with a friend who on a Saturday cannot put their cell phone down yes. because they have to respond to yes. an email. I'm like, yeah. what if you're in the shower right now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was, you know? yeah. When I was like 25, I once interviewed to be the assistant who, for a celebrity that I won't name because I did not take the job. And they told me I had to shower with the phone in a Ziploc bag <laughs> in case they called. 
<laughs> and I said, okay, I'm not taking that job. Right. Because, you know, they might have been serious. I think they were. You know, it's a definitely a metaphor for the reality yes. of it. It's so, and and so, I, I what what are you actually, okay, how are you advocating for this? What have you been yeah. doing? I We host a lot of workshops now. They're okay. free. We host them at Spring Place in Soho in New York. Um, or we do them virtually. I just did actually. Who's we? Myself and my team. You okay, know, wonderful. I lead them, but they okay. design them. They're the yeah. visual geniuses behind them. Uh, they're totally free and open to the public. And they're supposed to really, we do two things. We start with an education component behind burnout. Okay. Give people the opportunity to take a questionnaire to see where they are in their burnout. Because most people actually haven't taken the time to sit, sit down and be like, hmm. Right. And then we talk about recovery tips and tricks and tools. And you walk away with a little handbook that you can keep in your back pocket to support you in your recovery process. We also talk a lot about how it's not always the job. It's not always the relationship. It's not always the friend. There's 50% of burnout is yourself. Mm-hmm. You can change. I know people who and the choices you're making. burnout and every job they've had and every single job is wildly different. Right. No, I know those people too. Yes. But no matter where they work and who they work for, people who have them working 20 hours a week or six, they still end up with, I hate my job. I hate my boss. And at some point you're like, okay, well, you're the common denominator here. So we talk a lot about that, right? If your environment or your relationship is abusive, which a lot of toxic work environments exist in this world, then that is definitely the source of your burnout. Right. But if you find your burnout is following you, that's the other 50% of the work. It's just not always the environment. Good point. So we we help people unpack that. And we also acknowledge we're, and I also acknowledge this, I'm not a therapist. I'm only speaking from my personal experience and aggregate of all the research I've done for the past couple of years. And it's really supposed, these workshops are just to inspire and empower people to go home and do the work to heal themselves. Right. You know, like I, I don't have any credentials to heal other people. Right. And that would be scary. If I was out here saying I do, Please. There's a lot of irresponsible healers out but there. But it's a conduit. It's a conduit yeah. and a means to begin the process, you know, via a thought system. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's really fantastic. And, you know, you're also such a champion of the power of authenticity and self-worth mm-hmm. um, within the workplace, which ties into this, you know, work of of acknowledging burnout mm-hmm. and, and helping people um, see that. So tell us about your experience focusing on authenticity and Mm -hmm. self-worth. That has come from a misunderstanding that I had for many years of what does it mean to have self-worth and how do you gain self-worth? We say when people are struggling with how their self-esteem and their self-worth and their insecurity, they're like, just go practice, maybe go out and practice some self-care, wellness. Well, if you're already in a place where you don't, you feel like shit, sitting down and meditating is actually not going to really make you feel that much better. Or going on a walk might make you feel better temporarily, but then you come home after your walk and what is that experience for you emotionally? And so I realized, and there's a great book called Burnout by a behavioral scientist named Emily Nagaski. I realized and from her book confirmed it that actually gaining self-worth was not through self-care, but through closing what they call the stress cycle and peer accountability. And the last part of it was like the thing that people hate doing, 
And what I just cringed with, which is like actually sitting with the amazing things that you've done, Hmm. positive affirmations to yourself in the mirror, listening to someone else read your your bio, you know, having someone else read your feedback from your performance review and actually receiving it. Right. Meditating and going on a run is a temporary, it's a temporary experience of self-worth, but you got to get in there and heal the wound. You just can't put a meditation bandaid on top of your self-worth. And so I really believe that like toxic work environments are a product usually of people with unhealed wounds of self-worth. Because you're allowing yourself to accept it. Yeah, and you use the construct of work and the power and hierarchy dynamic to inflict that pain on other people. Right. The worst bosses I've ever had that were just nasty Oh, man, they were so insecure. Right. I had one boss who every single day on my way to work, I had to buy her a pack of cigarettes and a gigantic Red Bull. I was like, you cannot tell me this person feels good about themselves that this is what they're consuming first thing in the morning every day. Right. And this is my boss. So I had to deal with her trauma and her self-worth. That was because she was not a healed person. Right. So I'm really trying to get people to like heal themselves, not just for your babies and your husband and the whole, but like for your work, for everybody around you, because then yes. that becomes a part of their journey. Yes. I mean, listen, you're preaching to the choir. I know everyone is hearing this and they're <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, and there's no accountability for like unhealed trauma in the workplace, but there really should be because there's some people out here doing crazy shit to their employees. Yeah. That you're just like, I mean, I get these emails sometimes. I'm like, what? Right. Why do you have people walking your damn dog? Right. What? This person went to Harvard and you are having them walk your dog because right. you don't feel like it. No, you're doing that to make that person feel like shit. Right. Because you feel like shit. Right. And you get away with it because you're the boss. Mm-hmm. Hierarchical system. Right. And. But I believe that if you're healed in the workplace, a boss like that. You'll leave. You'll be able to move past it. Or set boundaries. Set boundaries. You'll say, no, here's a, here, Rover. I heard Rover's a great account to hire someone to come walk your dog. Right. Let me set it up for you. Right. And that ties into the (laughs) self-worth. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's really fantastic that you've been able to start your own company and create the kind of culture you want to see. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing about, you know, entrepreneurship and having the opportunity to create spaces yeah. that that foster that kind of nurturing and growth and just normalcy for people mm-hmm. so that they can thrive. Yeah. And it, you know, it it positively affects business. It does. It positively affects business. And it's also a pay it forward. You know, you... When you're treated well as an employee, you will treat other people well as your employees, whether you stay in corporate America or go off on your own. You treat someone like shit as a boss, you can guarantee they'll probably adopt those behaviors and treat the next person like shit. And it just continues. I emulate my former boss at Refinery in how I treat my team because that's how she treated me. Pierre Gilardi, I'll preach about her to the council. I love Pierre. (laughs) I know. She's the best, but she just held so much a ball of energy and bright light oh my god she's the 
princess of optimism. You know, she's just pure sunshine, pure sunshine, so supportive, holds held so much space for me. And but also was willing to have an intellectual debate, willing for me to challenge her, willing for her to, even though she started Refinery29, was willing to receive her employees' feedback on leadership, on company corporate structure, and make those changes. Right. So when I'm leading my team and building out how I my team operates, I'm emulating Piera. Right. Because that's what I know. Right. We emulate what we experience. And you get more out of people and your team when they feel seen, appreciated. And these gems you're dropping are really, you know, a a guideline for someone in leadership that might be struggling with how to lead. Yeah. And um, especially if you're, you know, someone with the iron fist and it's not working for you. Right. (laughs) Right. And leadership is not having everyone in at 9 a.m. Right. And creating these like structures that were considered like that's not i'm sorry that's not leadership my team gets in everyone's in a 9 a.m sharp i'm like i I don't think you should be bragging about that that tells me you're a control freak Mm -hmm. because how many people do i have i known throughout my whole career that got in at 9 a.m or like watching youtube videos on their computers because they didn't have anything to do (laughs) it depends on the industry it does you know definitely in a creative space it's kind of like (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, what, what is this? Yeah. And look, it's not, it's just not our fault. Like there is, it goes back. I mean, you can bring it back to like the industrial revolution essentially, mm-hmm. which is the idea that we had to create these labor laws because we were making uh, children and people were working crazy, crazy situations, 1910. So these laws were put in the best, with the best of intention. Why we still do what we decided in 1910, 1920 now is what I don't, well, it's very different now. I think the different. world has in America has been turned on its head following the pandemic yeah. and the increase of remote work mm-hmm. has definitely changed the um, corporate construct for, you know, businesses, great and small. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think those with larger corporations tend to want to see everybody in the office, but it's definitely had, um, you know, caused founders and, and those in the C-suite to have to rework and figure out how to inspire folks and actually yeah. let go. Let go of how you manage and, and you know, your teams. And, yeah. and we're still in a period right now of figuring it all out. <laughs> 100%. And listen, human beings are smart. The companies that are requiring, you know, I read this article and actually one of my former employees was telling me he had to do this which was uh, companies that are fully remote or have stayed remote since COVID, but require people to work an eight-hour day and track their time. They're people, they have like these new things you can put on your mouses oh my so God. that your mouse is always moving. Oh, right. That. <laughs> because they will, your time, time. I mean, I'm yes. like, are you yes. fucking kidding me? I don't know which companies do that, but I, <laughs> I have seen so, that. Of yeah. course, people have outsmart these corporate structures right. that are putting these insane limits. I'm like, you're literally wasting money. If you would just let that person work six hour, six hour days and pay them still their full salary. I'm like, you, people are smart. I heard that people putting their phones on, if their phones are the what is tracking the time, put a phone, tie it to a fan. Right. I've seen. I mean, people are smart. They're so smart. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's still an ongoing conversation. I think that while we're settling, um, you know, corporations are settling, things are changing. I remember in 2019, 
my team advocating very heavily for a four-day work week. Yeah. And I just blink like, no way. <laughs> now it's different. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, um, totally, totally. It's different. And it's it's more about the creativity and and being open to hearing yeah. what works for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a new day and a new dawn. So what piece of advice would you give someone struggling to find happiness mm. while pursuing their career? Now, I, I have to say, I, you know, I'm of two minds with this. Me too. I was going to say that. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I think when you're building a career, it's not always about being happy. It's about the opportunity. Mm. But I also don't think you should work somewhere where you're suffering. So what's you, what do you think about that? Oh, my goodness. I'm in the same boat. I'm in I get asked this. this all the time, yeah. by the way. Like my entire career, people ask me about this all yeah. the time. Yeah. So I can honestly say I have not mastered this, but I do think this is an, an amazing skill set that it, if you can actually do it, great, which is accept the reality that your happiness does not have to be tied to your work. And some people can do that. My friend Sarad, she's like, girl, I work to pay the bills and then I'm off. She's right. like, my happiness is when I'm traveling and I'm seeing the world. And she's found a way to structure her year calendar of like, she takes three months to explore and is an independent contractor. When she's working, she's not expecting to feel fulfilled by that because she knows that her fulfillment comes in the things that she has followed through on, which is writing, making her own personal passion projects and traveling. It's very hard to get there. And she is an extremely evolved person. And that's why I adore her. But I do think that's one school of thought. And that's something that I would, if you are wired that way, I would encourage people who can do that to know that that's an amazing thing to be able to do is, is to accept that happiness and work don't have to be the same thing. Right. But not if there's t toxicity and abuse in the situ in the environment. There's never any exception for that. And it happens at work. And it happens at work. So if you are being abused at work and you are in a toxic work environment, do not take the advice of me saying your work doesn't have to make you happy as an excuse to keep you in that. People know. Right. You know. Right. right. But that is one school of thought. I'm of the school of thought of and for somebody who's looking for happiness, happiness is not a, a permanent state and we treat it as such. So mm -hmm. you'll never have it if you're looking for happiness period in your job. I try to look at it as ongoing joy. And that's a great way to put it. That's how I shift what my, what my work is supposed to bring me. I don't, in life in general, in my marriage, with my family, my friends, this idea of like, this person, this thing has to make me happy versus how do I have ongoing and continued joy in these environments, in my relationship with my people I work with and that I love. And I found that that shift of framework makes the times that my work is challenging fine. Right. Days that it's like, oh, crap, I got so many damn meetings, like all these things to do. I'm like, okay, this is just one of the days in my ongoing joy journey. Right. That is just a tough day. Right. And so if you can shift that mindset, I think in that framework, it can help you, anyone or the person who's asking this question, maybe change what their definition of happiness is. Yeah. And I think everyone should change their definition of happiness, though. I think that's why we're so unfulfilled is like we're treating it like a like we're going to get there. Right. Period. And that speaks to your journey. I mean, obviously, you're not afraid of pivoting. and You have pivoted. Mm -hmm. um, I've pivoted along the road in my career and folks who have been in various industries through the years have contacted me because they wanted to pivot. And is the a question I ask is, are you wanting to pivot 
because you have a deep passion and desire to do this thing mm-hmm. or you're just not happy with mm-hmm. where you are right now. And yeah. I've been told I'm not happy doing this. And, and and it's fine to change, but I'm of the mindset that like, you know, of your friend, Sarad, like, mm-hmm. you know, you work isn't going to be all roses 24 yeah. seven. And what a professional career can afford you is a life mm-hmm. where you can go home yes. and enjoy your yes. life. And as long as it's not, you know, an abusive or toxic environment, which you should work to get out of, um, it's some, it's an end to a means. It's mm-hmm. how you're able to live and enjoy life. And I think that's where balance comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, balance is about knowing that your work doesn't truly define you, have to define mm-hmm. you, but the life you build, it's a part of a life that you build all, all the way around. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm fully in alignment with you. And I would say that, you know, whenever I've pivoted, it's similarly, it's not rooted in like this idea of happiness, but apathy. When I've gone to the place of like, I don't really care about this anymore. Big time. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Of like, I actually think apathy is more dangerous than like love or hate. Mm -hmm. When you just got in the place, you're like, I don't really care. Right. You really don't care. Right. If you hate something, you got a lot of energy there. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of emotion still attached. Like I have girlfriends who are like, I'm over him. I'm like, girl, you're not over him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you really have a lot of feelings there. You know, when you're over someone, when you're just like, I just wish them well. Oh, right. they're, they're married. Great. Good for them. Well, <laughs> and you just move on. Right? right. It doesn't impact your life. And I've just gone to places in my career and in certain jobs and at certain companies where like things that were once exciting me. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to work on it. I was like, I don't really care. I'll do it. Sure. That is my danger zone. And that's when it's time to grow. That's when I'm like, I got I to gotta pivot. Right. And sometimes I'm like, oh, no, it's happening. I feel it. But it tells me that it's it's time, you know, and, and I'm. I'm I'm someone who feels I feel so blessed. I I have so much faith and I'm just like I've been given too much in life to be apathetic. Right. You know, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. So it means it's time to move on. Well, one thing I think that's very remarkable about you and your journey is that you are exploring and endeavoring and moving into all the areas that seem to interest you. And I think that there are many people who have a career path, but desire to do different things. And you are a visual example mm-hmm. of someone who is doing all of the things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sh- that's coming from passion. And that brings me to discussing your your work as the creator and on-air talent for The Elephant, and mm-hmm. her name is mm-hmm. Extracurricular Activities, Extracur- if you will. I, I love it. You know? I, 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 but tell yeah. us about these two remarkable platforms yeah. that you've built. Yeah, so The Elephant, we just did one season of, and we probably won't do it again. But what? Uh, tell us what it, because I just mentioned the name, yeah, I didn't yeah. say what it is. Yeah, so The Elephant was a mini-series uh, that I created alongside my dear friend, Sophia Lee, uh, unpacking the... Uh, prejudices and uh, both insecurities and issues between the black community and the Korean American community that is pervasive in this country. Um, and, and I would say broadly uh, the Asian American community and just trying to understand, we called it the elephant of like the elephant in the room as she and I are both women of color who have never breached the conversation of race with each other. 
but it's so disproportionately impacts our lives. Like right. she is an Asian American woman. I'm a black American woman, like races our existence. And here we were two women of color, never having engaged in that conversation. Albeit friend, although you're friends, although we're friends. And right. it was about, you know, us acknowledging, you know, why did I as a black woman not feel I could come to her as an Asian woman? And why as an Asian woman, did she not feel she could come to me as a black woman? Why hadn't we approached these subjects? And what did we need to know about our communities that were both similar and different? Um, this was a very therapeutic project for us. It, uh, we launched it coincidentally right around Stop Asian Hate when that became uh, a very important awareness that still is pervasive and shouldn't have disappeared. Right. But you know how this, this system works. So really proud of that work. And I think it's just an example of what it means. I think people think, oh, I, I don't want to start a series. I don't want to start a podcast or a show because what if I only do one season? So do one season. Do whatever makes you feel good. <laughs> like who says we won't do another season in five years from now? Like right now, that felt good for us. So we just right. did one. Um, and then the other one is a show that I made with my friend Tembi Denton Hurst, who's an amazing author. She wrote her first book this year, the New York Times bestseller. A call to her name is, and it's about resurfacing stories of Black women who we feel, and we've gotten people send me emails about this, have been lost to history. Mm -hmm. We say through lost to history in our context, our world. We are right. we are two educated Black women, and we did not know who Sister Rosetta Tharp was, or Jesse Norman, or Tracy Norman. All these women that we covered, we were like, why wasn't this taught to us? Mm -hmm. And so the premise is just, her name is X. Black women who, for the majority people, maybe have forgotten telling their story and giving people an opportunity to learn a little bit more about them. I love it so and much. And so we just sit just like this, yeah. talk about them, cut to images and footage of them, and then get into why we feel like their stories have been lost. And yes, it's easy to just be like, it's a system, it's a construct, which is true. But oftentimes these things are super layered. Mm -hmm. Right. There are key people. I mean, with Sister Rosetta Tharp, for example, El everyone started saying that Elvis was the king of rock and roll, that he birthed rock and roll. We identified this straight white man as the birth of this entire music genre, but actually it was birthed by a black queer woman who, you know, lo was lost to history because we had what is considered the most acceptable of figures come in and take that spotlight. Right. So let's unpack that. Let's understand why that happened, how that happened and how we can change that narrative moving forward so we're gonna do season three it's fun i say for all creatives as well like do it for you don't do it for the views i love it you know like if people watch it great if people don't watch it great i it just feels good to know you started something and finished something right you right. know and like that's enough and i think that's really hard as a creative right i'm sure you feel that too it's like what if it's not award-winning right what does that mean about me yeah. Nothing. I but. don't feel that. I've long, oh, no, I'm past it. Good. I'm like, good. you know, humbly, I want to say, because nothing's in, you know, a f infinite, finite, rather, very balanced, yeah. you know? And I think it comes from the support system around me. Yeah. You know, I'm okay to turn it off and turn yeah. it on. And, and that's about growth. Yeah. And maturity and time that I don't deal with a lot of that. How do you um, protect your peace? I, I protect my peace through prayer, meditation, mm -hmm. and constantly assessing those around me mm. and how they make me feel. Yes. You know, and I keep yes. really great people around me mm -hmm. who water the best in me. Amen. And call out 
the worst in me yes. and love me nonetheless, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's very hard as an entrepreneur and a creator to be okay with stopping yeah. and doing less. Yes. And of course, you know, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, you think about when you do something, you put something out into the world, like how is it going to be received? But it's a very fleeting thought and idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so inspired by you because I love- oh, Likewise. As, yeah. No, here, that's why I was like, mm, say it again. I, no, it's so true. Yeah. Community is community, underrated. It's it, underrated. It's really important. Yes. And I just love that, um, you know, you've pivoted, started something, but you're not feeling like you have to stay in a box. You know, you're yeah. creating, building, and- um, I think that's what your 20s are for. Right. Literally, I'm like, I, I, well, I'm 32 now, and I wish someone had told me this when I entered my 20s that like your 20s are fucking up and figuring it out, and if you can just trust that in the end you'll hit 30 and it kind of just shakes oh, well, you, you find place. out real fast. <laughs> Retrospect, yeah, right. You're like all of a sudden you just enter a new decade and you're like, okay, like all that shit that I was doing, I gotta like get it together. <laughs> yes. Yes. But your twenties give you the opportunity to figure it out. And I took my twenties to figure it out. Right. And I feel no shame in telling people I'm 32 years old. People a lot of women have that, which I'm like, come on. It's a gift. It's a blessing to have another year. Always. Not everyone gets it. Yeah. You when know? I say I'm an old lady, I'm like, listen, some people didn't make it here. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So it's oh, it's always great. Yeah. Um, so you spoke last year at with Yelp about mm-hmm. building your brand identity, and I think we we've been kind of talking yeah, about yeah. that a bit here. Any advice for someone who's looking to start a brand or even build their mm-hmm. brand identity? What is your why? That's what I ask everybody. And if your why is not rooted in a personal value good luck. Right. And you could tell me a personal value is wealth and money. Great. So you can build something that's just for that. But if you don't know your why and you're just looking around, oh, looks, I'm just going to build. It's not going to work. I think the brands that are the most successful are usually rooted in some sort of personal story or someone saw something in a market and they felt it was so connected to a personal value that they wanted to go out and achieve it and mm-hmm. pursue it. Um, but knowing your why and building a brand is essential. It's the essence. It's your yeah. core of, of what's going to get you up and motivated. I think we get disillusioned by these stories of people who build businesses like RX Bar, right? Like if someone brings up RX Bar to me one more time. I'm like, do you know how many brands have sold for a hundred million dollars in under one year? None. He's like the only right. one. <laughs> Let's stop using that as this like example. But I think what has happened in this pervasive brand building world that we're in where everyone has a product is people think they can start something with a quick exit. So they're like, I don't need to have a why. I don't need to have an emotional value connected to this because I'm going to sell in in two years to L'Oreal for $500 million. I'm like, get in line. Right. You might be stuck with this shit for a decade. And I hope you love it. (laughs) Yes. Know your why, your purpose, because otherwise... I don't know. I think it's irresponsible. I think it's irresponsible. Love your purpose. Love your purpose. Feel driven by your purpose. Don't take people's money. Don't raise capital against something that you don't actually believe in. Absolutely. That's irresponsible. And I believe in karma. So I'm like, "Mm, don't do that. Right. Right. 
Well, we see the chips do fall. <laughs> chips do fall. Forbes today came out, maybe it was yesterday, came out with a list was like our hall of shame. Oh, wow. And it was acknowledging everyone they had put on 30 under 30 that actually was a crook. Oh, my goodness. I was shocked by them for yeah. doing that. But a lot of people have basically. But cheers. Yeah, <laughs> but good for them. Yeah. yeah. And like, I wonder, I mean, I read through some of them. I don't know if a lot of people, those people had clear whys. Right. I don't think so. Right. I think they had greed right. as their driving factor behind yeah. building those businesses. Yeah. And it's not so easy to see when you're, um, you know, when folks are investing, it's they invest in the founders. And if mm-hmm. you can talk a good game, sometimes you get past, yeah. you know, but the cream does rise to the top. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like I do want to make it clear for somebody who had the best of intentions, a clear why and raise capital and their business did not work out. I don't consider that, that happens. I don't consider that yeah. a failure at all. Yeah. I think it takes an immense amount of courage to build a business. It does. And I don't believe anyone loses. You only learn. Right. And if you're an investor, I'm an investor. Part of being an investor is that you understand that not every be- investment is going to see a return. Right. But anything I've invested in, whether it was my time or money, where the founder was passionate, had a clear why and it didn't work out, I don't regret it. Right. And so I don't want journey. anyone who's had that experience to feel any sense of shame. No, I mean, how brave are you? Right. But I mean, it's been it's been interesting, uh, you know, and I'm not going to get into the long list, but there have been quite a few companies that, you know, was were shams, mm-hmm. raised significant capital and. We all know the disparities of yeah. those, uh, you know, individuals that really want to build earnest businesses and aren't given the opportunity. Yes. So I'm glad to know that you're an investor and yeah. doing something to level the playing field any yeah. way that you can, whether it's time or financial resources. Yeah. Less than 1% of capital that was deployed last year went to businesses of color. Right. And I'm afraid for the 2023 numbers it's gonna based be on this economy. Yeah. And for women-owned businesses, it was like... I think it was even lower than that. Yeah. And so there it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem, right? Of like who where did how have we reached a place of who decides who gets to fail? Yeah. Right? And why so is the risk higher right. or lower than others? But there's some new funds out there that are like really catered to bringing awareness to that and there's a great one called Pendulum that I love. I think they're genius. They've made a lot of great investments and they're dedicated to helping black and brown people. That's wonderful. I think folks, you hear the statistics so much and all over the place, but I think it just came to me. It's really important that we talk about it Mm -hmm. because talking about it raises awareness Mm -hmm. and inspires people to do something about it. So even though we're hearing the numbers all over the place and the whole planet probably knows by now, it's important that we keep raising the flag and mm-hmm. inspiring others to do something about it. Yeah, just the that's the only way you 100%. wave the pendulum. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the consideration also in how you spend your money as a result, right? If the idea is, oh, well, we don't invest in black and brown businesses because they don't show us a return. Well, we as, as people can change that by investing our own consumer dollars in black and brown businesses. And all of a sudden, that brand, that founder has the the money and the awareness and the revenue to go to that investor and say, no. Right. You know, black women spend $8 billion a year on hair care. I'm like, how many of us are buying hair care, the hair care brands from POC? Right. 
imagine if we put and dedicated that $8 billion to exclusively black and brown brands, that number of less than 1% would go up. And just women-led companies as well, because, <laughs> you know, it's just, um, 100%. which I'm hearing, uh, you know, while, of course, people are still raising venture capital and so forth, there's a big drive to hone in on profitability, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot Rightfully of folks so. are really focusing on building, you know, straight up profitable businesses. Mm-hmm. And those numbers are, you know, attracting, um, you know, the founder of Calendly famously, oh, amazing. you know, went very far with 500,000 and now has a, you know, billion dollar valuated yeah. company. So yeah. that's one of the success stories and we're hearing more and more of those. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a profitable business. Listen, if you're making money, you're making money. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And yeah, I think also people where this drive for profitability, why it matters is, or people, I've heard a lot of people complaining about Uber prices going up. Me too. I'm one of them. I'm just going to say. I'm oh, com- I'm like, every girl. day I talk about it. We're New Yorkers and I'm not even going to tell you, <laughs> I started taking the subway again. Yeah, me too. I took the subway. That's what I was Everyone's saying. like, everyone's like, sneak, my my whole look, what I wear changes, flat shoes, yeah, 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 everything's yeah, a yeah, one yeah. inch heel. Well, Isn't it insane? It's insane. But what are they doing? They're actually having to be a profitable business. Right. Right. They spent years and years and years and years not making a dollar. And we're seeing with WeWork filing for bankruptcy and all these businesses filing for bankruptcy, these businesses were not making money. I didn't want to run the list down, but since you're doing it, keep going. Yeah. You know, they weren't making any (laughs) money. They were raising capital, raising capital, raising capital. And, you know, I have said to so many people, um, you know, over the years that, as a woman, as a female founder, you know, we don't have the opportunity to always do that. Mm-hmm. We have so many things that we have to show and prove. And it's really culturally where people just don't 100% believe in the ability for us to scale businesses in the way that we do. But the data's out there. Yeah. The data's out there to be seen. And so, you know, I've always personally focused on the profitability mm-hmm. piece even with the brands that I work with yeah. and and for. And so, yeah, it's important. You know, it's, you know, they came to find out that you couldn't have a on-demand car service yes. for $11 <laughs> in New York City. Yeah, and it's, it's so important for women and female identifying folk to understand the market, understand what we're talking about. We're talking about profitability and and how businesses are able to grow and scale without being profitable. Understanding what revenue means, index funds, all these different financial nuances. And the other thing is learn how to play golf. Those deals, <laughs> those deals are done with those white boys on the golf course. Yeah. And you need to know how to play and be there. That's a bigger, um, what's the word I'm trying to find? That's a bigger, uh, you know, uh, example of, of, something that should be considered. Maybe it's golf. Maybe it's just being in the right places Mm -hmm. um, at the right time with the right circle of folks. You know, it's part of business development, but it's also very important to, you know, look for other sources of financing your business, especially the way the economy is right now. We have no idea what we're walking into in 2024. Yeah, and save, have reserves, understand that, that, you know, I also think, you know, we we do live in such a capitalist society that tells us that having the things is what matters. But, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love a nice thing. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love a nice thing. But we historically don't pass on 
generational wealth, black people. We weren't able to for hundreds of years, right? That was one of the deeds that held black people back is that we could not pass on generational wealth. We'd always had to start at zero. So saving money and having money to leave and pass on and making smart investments and understanding the financial market is one of the only ways as women and as people of color, we're ever going to be able to change a lot of those statistics. Right. Right. It's like, it's thinking not just about us right now in the nice Bottega that like, yeah, I will buy when the time is right and I feel good and I can do it. I'll do it. But you also have to really make sure you save. Right. And you really need to make sure you take care of other people and invest smartly and wisely. Right. And realize that that if it doesn't have a return, you you don't need to do it all the time. Right. And this is the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important. So why should someone trust the timing of their life? Oh, gosh. I love that you said that. Um, why should someone trust the time? I really believe that life happens for you. I believe that we all have a choice as human beings to be positive or negative, optimistic, pessimistic, whatever feels best for everyone. And if you believe and if you have faith, and again, you don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be Muslim, your faith could be spirituality, you could just have an idea or think that there's just something, an essence, whatever it is for you, if you believe mentally that life is happening for you, then you can trust the timing that it will continue to happen for you. So when something works out, it's because life is working in your favor. So you have to trust the timing of your life. And that is the only way I can make sense of the blessings that I've been able to have in my life. I couldn't agree with you more. Otherwise, doesn't really make any sense. Why, right? Like, why are we the fortunate ones? Mm-hmm. Life is happening for us. We're here for a reason. We were put in this exact place for a reason. I believe that. And I also believe in the power of of manifestation, right? So you have a positive mindset, believe things will work out, and they will. They might not work out on the timing you would like. That's what you have to trust it. Yeah. You know, I once had a, I did a, um, a reading with a spiritual healer, and she told me my, like, greatest professional years will be uh, in my 50s. And I was like, that's a little bit away. <laughs> I was like, I'm 30 years old. I got one. <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to retire. Right. What are you talking about? But then I was like, you know what? I got to trust the timing. And who knows this lady's right? Right. right. Like, I right. don't know. Like, she's but just of hearing men. it conceptually, I think it's so important to just, you know, have a spirit of gratitude. Yeah. Uh, because that helps to keep you balanced. Yeah. 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 I think I find that sometimes people really struggle with gratitude of what does it actually mean? And I grew up in a, in a household of people, be grateful. There are kids out there who don't have dinner. And you're like, uh, okay, yes, but my feelings are also valid. Valid, right. That was not like my how my parents parented, right? Yeah. And so what I try to say to people who are struggling to find gratitude is, again, is trying to find faith, right? It's just trying to find something. I that, say make a list. Yeah, make a list. <laughs> Make a list and keep on going down until. And also maybe finding gratitude in like the little things. Like, you know, it's finding someone's like health, happiness and family. I'm like, yeah, yes. Right. (laughs) I make a literal list of all the little things. It's important because um, I just and it's, you know, no hard or fast rule. Mm -hmm. I just find that as you make the list. The energy changes. Absolutely. Your spirit changes. There's always something to be grateful for. Yeah. And when 
life is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one way for you to feel and understand that it's happening for yeah. you, yeah. as you said, yeah, instead of to you. Absolutely. And and take cha- doing the challenge, I once did a therapist, ha- she said, what are you grateful for in this exact second in this room? And I was like, in this room? And, she, and I was like, I'm grateful that I have fresh, cold water to drink. Right. I'm grateful for a room that's heated. I'm not concerned about getting sick. I'm grateful for this conversation with you. I'm grateful for this really comfortable chair. And this is how my gratitude list goes. Yes. These are the things. And we Fresh get, air. Yes, fresh health, air. The meal I mm-hmm. ate today. And then you go from there and, yes. you yes. know, there's yes. always something. Yeah. And so starting here and now, I think is easier than, or maybe it's more impactful than health, happiness, and family. Right. Of course, we're all grateful for those things, but do saying that aloud, I don't know if it shifts people. And I'm, and I wanted to get at the shift. Yeah. Because people generally know that. Yeah. But we're talking about the, the shift. shift in spirit. Yes. It makes you, gives you the energy to keep going when yes. things don't feel so great. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been such a powerful conversation. Deep. I'm so Deep, happy Mindy, I to have had you here. It. Yes. Thank you for having so me. So what's next for Madison Utendahl? Oh, I'm taking vacation. Okay. I wait. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be much of a vacation because I'm going to Ghana and we're going to be partying. Okay. <laughs> that's why I'm not going to Ghana. Don't look for me there because that's why I'm not going. <laughs> so I'm taking some time off. I'm closing my office from December 15th to January 4th so that everyone gets to take time off. <laughs> I say for anyone who owns a business, like when you shut your whole office, you get to really be on vacation. Yes. It's kind of the only time I'm like, oh, same. Only time of year I can do it. Yeah, just take Truly. it. Just take it. No one, don't be the jerk who sends an email on December 26th. I'm always like, mm. come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? I will not say a word. <laughs> don't do it. Don't I, do I it. never have, but I, I'm always like, who's going to be the one the email? One. Yes, yes. It's been years since I've gotten a, one on the 26th, but I did get one on December 30th. Yeah, I will yeah, not yeah. forget. You yeah. know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so the first answer is I'm resting. I'm relaxing. I'm going to take some time. It's I'll come so back. Important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad, my dad's coming up from Miami for Christmas. And Fun. I just intend on relaxing. Great. And then what's next? I mean, I, I want to write a book. Great. I've started. And I'm working on releasing it needing to be a certain way. So I'm writing chapters that are, I don't know, they're going to be in a book. Maybe, maybe not. But it comes to me and I'm like, just write the chapter. That is a spirit. You know, and I'm like, that's what you hire an editor for, apparently. You know (laughs) what I mean? It's like, dump all your chapters. I read that like Brene Brown dictates her books, that that's like how she writes them. And so the idea that you need to like sit down and write this like chapter one to chapter forty as one cohesive thing is not necessarily how everyone writes a book. Right. And that's the thing I've learned. And so I'm, my goal for this next year is to write a book and write it in a way that works for me. Right. And my, I would say what else is next for me is continuing to evolve in my career and pivoting and yeah, you know, I'm getting married and congratulations. It's going to be a big year. Yeah. Yeah. And just being grateful for the cold water for the cold water. I hear you. Yeah. Well, it's been so great having you, Madison. Thank you for having I just want to remind so everyone that, like, go after whatever it is your yeah. heart desires. And if there's something professionally that you want to do, 
there's information on the internet. Yeah. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) This is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis and Madison Utendahl. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye.